The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, how about paying attention to your first flight? It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 334 with guests Chris Hart, Kyle G, and Zane Nabulski, recorded live Tuesday, March 18, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, VNRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, providing the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web Applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who just traded his wife's cat for some virtual real estate, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin, New London, Connecticut. Richard Campbell's out there in Vancouver, British Columbia. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, sir. It is Thursday. It's our Thursday show. I love a Thursday. Uh, it's never a good idea to tell a dirty joke right before we start recording, because then we now we can't stop laughing. <laughs> you just don't want to do that. Oh, uh, yeah. But that's part of the click, course click, around click, here. Click. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. So let's, uh, I guess... I got nothing else to say, so let's get into let's get into better know framework right away. All right, buddy, hit me. All right, so uh, remember I was talking on Tuesday about the trace class. Ah, uh, yes, sir. Well, there's a trace listener class that provides the base class for a whole bunch of different types of listeners. There's a text writer trace listener, and uh, there's if you go to um, you know the doc- documentation system System.diagnostics.textwritertracelistener. It shows you how to add a line to your config file so that uh, you can uh, add the listener if you want uh, to do it that way. You can also use your code. Uh, you can load it in, in code, and it shows you how to create a file, create a stream, then create a new text writer trace listener passing in the stream, and then say trace a list trace.listeners.add your trace listener 
and now you've got it. And so I, I like you, the fact that you can do it with a config file. So I can put the trace code in. I don't have to take it back out. Yeah. And I can just switch it on and off as needed. Yes, that's the whole idea. That's very cool. Yep. So uh, tracing is uh, very, very cool in .NET. And, uh, you know, we'll talk some more about it maybe on the next show. Sure. Go All check right, it out. listeners. I like it. Go check it out. Also, by the way, uh, Scott Hanselman did a, 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 a DNR TV on tracing. Oh, yes. A long time ago. And he's also talked about it on Hanselman. It's quite a bit. So lots of content on tracing. Lots of content. And there'll be more because it's a big class. It is. All right. What you got? I got an email. It's another one of those good ones. It starts out, Richard and Carl. Ah. Show 309 with Les Pinter was my first experience with .NET Rocks. And not only am I a new listener, I am also new to programming. I am 29 ah. and I have a BA in business with a concentration in accounting. I have found this new love, programming, which is currently a hobby. I took an intro to VB6 course in college and loved it. If I had not already switched majors once, I would have considered switching to ComSci. I did not feel like turning my five-year stay at college into seven. Ah. Anyway, I was wondering if you guys had any suggestions on turning my hobby into a career. I currently work part-time in the IT department of the local school. I also wanted to say that I love the show with Les. I would love to have him over for dinner and pick his brain. Mm. Keep up the good work, guys. Your show has me hooked, and thank you for taking time out of your busy lives to create this great resource. Thanks, Brad Davis. Yeah, well, um, you know, the, the advice I give everybody who's in your position is very simple. It's pick a project that is outside of your ability, so you think. Something that would be so cool if you could pull off something that you'd be really, really proud of. And, um, you know, something that you definitely think you need to work to do and just start chipping away at it, the, you know, piece at a time. Just do it. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is writing the code. And, you know, it's not going to be perfect the first time. You may stop it and start it a couple of times. But the voyage of discovery uh, as it, it, it's the best thing you can do is to try, fail, see how things work. Learn from your mistakes, and uh, that's what I think anyway. Just be aware, we're setting you down the path of addiction. You will be addicted. If you fall in love with doing that, you're ruined. You will want to keep building software. And and i got to say, there's a lot of power in following your passion. I can't be doing what I'm doing right now if I wasn't as passionate about it as I am. Yep, you got to do your job every day. Yeah, you if really do, you know, and if you don't love it, and if your new love is programming, I really have a tough time saying, you know, don't not do that. Yeah. Like it's that, go do it. Go do it. And do it really well. <laughs> it's so much easier to be good at something you really enjoy. How's that for advice? Do it and go. do it well. Don't suck. Don't suck. And here's a .NET Rocks mug to further distract you from your career path. Not sucking is definitely a plus on your resume. <laughs> And feel free to send us some more email, uh, .NET rocks at franklins.net. And with that, Richard, uh, you know, this is going to be a really exciting show because I don't know if any of our listeners have ever been to Second Life, but um, I have. And it's weird at first uh, <laughs> being able to just fly around and people come up to you and say the most ridiculous things. And um, somebody gave me a motorcycle once. Here, have a motorcycle. I'm done with it. It was weird. And I just drove around for a while. But um, our, our, our three guests are uh, into programming, 
with .NET, Programming Second Life. So let me introduce Chris Hart, Zane Nabolsi, and Kyle G. Chris Hart is a .NET developer and a Microsoft Certified Technical Specialist for Windows SharePoint Services 3.0 Application Development. With a career that includes several years working for Rocks Press as an editor and author, as well as several years of development experience, Chris has been involved in the .NET world for around nine years since before it was called .NET. Chris is also an active participant in the Second Life.NET user group and can be found on the avatar alias of Strawberry Freed. Is that how you say it, Chris? Uh, however you'd like to pronounce it, really. Strawberry will do. The surnames are, well, they're arbitrary, really. <laughs> well, how do you pronounce it? I kind of called it Freed or Frieda, possibly. It Frida? sounded vaguely Northern European, Northern European, and that was that was enough for me. <laughs> okay, uh, Kyle G, as he likes to be known, is uh, an advanced electronics technician, or was an advanced electronics technician in the U.S. Navy from 1989 to 95. Sub Squadron 16 Naval Submarine Base in Kings Bay, Georgia. He formed G2. Now, is that the uh, a son or daughter? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's me and my wife, but uh, G- that's a good guess, too. I figured G2, you know, 2.0, right? Uh, formed right. <laughs> G2 with wife after success using 3D to train clients and partners uh, worldwide working as a test engineer at an aerospace firm. He implemented a statewide fuel tank monitoring system using cellular and satellite technologies to report to central web services systems for dispatching and inventory control and security. and just been a, an ASP.NET guy, and now he's uh, planning to use Second Life as a business tool for data visualization, product demonstration, and training. And uh, Zane Nabolsi, as for him, technology is useless if it doesn't serve a clear purpose. That's his philosophy. In fact, showing people how technology can make their lives better delivers his greatest on-the-job thrills. Zane has over 12 years of experience in software development and has taught a wide range of advanced technologies to thousands of students in more than 5,000 presentations. He's been a Microsoft Certified Trainer since 1995 and holds all major Microsoft certifications, plus credentials from Cisco, Checkpoint, and CompTIA, uh, TIA, CompTIA. Zane launched his development career with Visual Basic 3.0. Yeah! And honed his implementation (laughs) skills with Windows NT 3.5.1 and OS 2. Lately, he's been focused on the uh, object-oriented programming languages and developing his extensive knowledge of .NET technologies. When he's not behind the podium, Zane is polishing his gaming chops and hoping that someone will hire him as a professional video game player. That was a Farside cartoon uh, once, wasn't it? What's that? That that was a Farside cartoon, wasn't it? Uh, The classified (laughs) ads for Super Mario Brothers players and the wishful parents, you know, salaries starting at $300,000 a year. (laughs) I miss the far side, by the way. <laughs> I do, too. Whatever happened to Gary Larson? He probably went crazy. <laughs> Good so, question. So, Second Life. Who knew? .NET, Second Life. <laughs> who wants to kick off this topic? So, we got we to gotta start at the beginning here with folks who, uh, who don't really know what Second Life is. I suppose so. I think Zane would be the best to uh, to get a discussion going on the roots because he's been in the longest and and really was there at the beginning for the .NET crew getting inside. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's a long and, and storage story. I'm waiting for the epic miniseries to come out, but uh, <laughs> I'll start. So, uh, so yeah, Second Life, right? You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have made that connection, and I think most people don't um, because it's. Uh, 
kind of a compete environment, you know, particularly for Microsoft Technologies. But, uh, yeah, I've been a member of Second Life for several years. And uh, when I joined Microsoft about a year ago, I noticed that uh, there wasn't a lot of, a, a lot of uh, Microsoft presence in some of these places like Second Life being the most notable. And I thought to myself, being a developer evangelist, hey, you know what? It'd be kind of cool to see if we could get a user group started up inside Second Life. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been playing around with the idea and finally hopped in. And uh, much to my surprise, there was already a user group inside Second Life. Uh, it was being led by uh, Tori Ash, uh, the goddess of uh, .NET. And uh, we're missing her today, aren't we, guys? Uh, Absolutely. She's, right. She's freaking awesome, man. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I get there and there's like, uh, it's Tori and she's got about 40 people in the group, but they're not meeting, they're not doing anything really, um, which is kind of typical for a lot of your, you know, there's a, just a overwhelming number of groups in Second Life that they form and they don't really do much. Uh, so we started talking and uh, started trying to get folks together, meeting regular, and come to find out folks actually wanted to meet regular. So started the regular meetings. Uh, things were going real well. Started building things up. Uh, I took over Visual Studio Island from the uh, business management folks inside Microsoft, and and we so we had a place to meet, uh, and then uh, then one of the most fortuitous events happened to us. Uh, Kyle came and joined us, and after that, it kind of got exponential. Kyle just went nuts, building stuff, making the island great. I mean, he just yeah, you know, I'll let him speak to all the great stuff he's done, but it's just amazing uh, what he has done and his wonderful wife Robin. And then a little bit later, uh, uh, we had uh, um, Chris uh, join us and. Uh, She's been doing some uh, just freaky stuff on the island too. Been, been having a lot of fun with it. So, but come to I find thought out, that uh, Second Life was just sort of a fun place. People played around in there. What are businesses doing in Second Life? Yeah, yeah, I know. I did. Apparently, they're doing business. I, it surprised the heck out of me too. Let me let me ask a quick question here. Um, I when I was looking at Second Life, I didn't see any video composite. I didn't see any sort of video conferencing going on. But there, there is video and audio now, right? I mean, you can you can broadcast uh, a video, a live video stream to an audience, can you not? I'm going to let uh, yeah, Kyle speak to that. Uh, yes, um, we have uh, access to the QuickTime player is the only um, multimedia that they have in the uh, client right now that you can put on a prim, and, um, but it works great. Um, it uh, uses MP4, so you can easily convert, um, you know, your WMVs to that. And um, they recently added where uh, browsers can uh, also be displayed in World. It's not interactive yet, but and it doesn't support plugins. It's a it's a Firefox core, but um, we're just a step away from having Silverlight now uh, in World. So that'll wow. make for some really nice uh, presentations that we can drive off of websites instead of having to use the in world inventory system to show JPEGs and such. Chris, you were going to say something? I was going to say, yeah, the um, the options of streaming video in World now, uh, they're, they're pretty good. I've been to um, quite a few presentations given by various different people around the grid and. Uh, there's a conference going on right at the moment by um, the guys from Dr. Dobbs who've been um, doing all sorts of talks for quite a long time. Um, they've been streaming video out of Second Life and audio um, so that non-Second Life residents can watch it. But um, we're trying to make that. I think we're trying to make the in-world experience um, as rich as possible. There are limitations. We're just trying to work around them as much as possible and make the most of what we've got. 
Yeah, um, as kind of a corollary to that, I don't know if, uh, if it was brought up, but one of the workarounds we've come up with, which was kind of fun and really surprised me, the reaction from the folks was we use live meeting uh, as a workaround for doing live demos. And uh, uh, I would say the response was very positive. In fact, quite surprising how positive it was. Uh, and, you know, until Second Life gets that capability, we have to do those workarounds. So what does it mean to to program Second Life in .NET? What does that mean? I guess it comes from really making the most out of the Second Life programming environment um, and linking that through to real-world um, data sources and um, .NET code. So you have um, on objects in Second Life, you can add code using the Linden scripting language, or LSL as it's known, and you can have a certain amount of interactivity when avatars are walking around. They can click on objects, interact with them. But you can also communicate using HTTP. Um, you can communicate with the outside world. So you can request data from, say, an SPX page. You can um, you can use XML RPC to force data in-world. So we can send data from a database. If something's changed, we need to update something in-world. You can change the display of a print just by clicking a button on a web page. Um, so what Kyle and I have been trying to do, um, along with a few others, we've been trying to get um, as much interactivity between real world and second world as possible, second life world as possible. Well, you said you can have objects. So these are visually represented and programmable. You said in the Linden scripting language, how does, how does .NET fit into that? Can you write objects in C Sharp that exist in, in second life now? Uh, not yet, no. At the moment, um, LSL is its a state-based scripting language. It's quite an interesting little thing to play with, um, but it isn't, it isn't .NET. You have certainly not got any of the rich um, libraries that you have when you're programming a .NET application. But obviously, when you're walking around with an avatar, you've got a virtual world around you, and that world is built up using primitives, or prims as they're known. So you can create a, a cube, a sphere, a cylinder, and then you can tweak it, change it, apply textures, and gradually it becomes something completely different. And you then add code to that object, and that code can, you can produce a little HTTP request in that object, but that object will fire either when something happens, when an event happens, um, and that, that will then communicate via HTTP to the web. So I if you've got it. a database server sitting there, you can grab data and then stream it back in world. So we're really talking about programming on the server side, web services, or just HT, uh, what did you say, XML RPC, right? Yeah, absolutely, um, that's it. So, so with ASP.NET, you can provide data sources to these objects, but that's yeah, the, that's absolutely. the extent of the .NET programmability right now, right? Right now, yeah. So, what do you do? You guys have some evil plans for uh, uh, getting .NET more closely related with Second Life? Well, I would say that uh, the Lindens, uh, we've been having conversations with them, and uh, uh, they uh, apparently what they're going to do is offer up Mono as an option. So we might be able to get some programmability that way. I'm sorry, uh, who's Linden? Uh, the Lindens are the governing uh, folks who run, uh, the, you know, uh, Second Life is run by Linden Lab. Okay. And so we refer collectively to any employee over there as the Linden. Uh, that's uh, one of the cool terms we have for them. We, ha- we call them other things sometimes, but usually that's what we call them. Right. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, good folks. And, and, uh, they're, you know, switching over to, uh, mono, a version of mono that we hope then will provide that direct programmability. And, uh, one of the things that is interesting about LSL is it was an invented type language, scripting language inside 
um, Second Life, but it's it's C-based. It's very clearly C-based. So that as we uh, start moving people from LSL maybe to C-sharp, we found that transition to be actually pretty darn easy. Yeah, and um, I wanted to mention one other um, pathway into uh, the Second Life grid, and uh, that's an open source implementation of the uh, protocol that Linden Labs uses to talk between the client and the uh, server, and it's called uh, Lib Second Life, and uh, LibSL for short. And it's at uh, libsecondlife.org, and it's a uh, it's written in C sharp, and they have a, where you can download C sharp Express even and compile it, and it generates a bot that um, is projected in world, and you can program it to do whatever you want. And this is really a big untapped resource for .netters. This is by far the fastest way to communicate with uh, Second Life. You can do anything an avatar can do uh, right in Visual Studio by programming it, and there's tons of samples out there. So, um, you know, we're planning on using this to create a bot that will give tours of Microsoft's simulator and explain to people what goes on there, but I'd like to develop it into almost non-player characters eventually that'll answer uh, questions about SQL Server, C-sharp, anything you want, and that'll uh, create some stickiness to the sim and and uh, allow a lot of .netters to take that. We're going to open source it and play with it and do things not just projecting bots, but using the bot as a uh, gateway to send data in and out and do things within the world. Uh, and just sort of as an aside to this, I was just reading recently that uh, the uh, artificial intelligence researchers are now using Second Life and this botting effect to be able to experiment with uh, interactive uh, artificial intelligences. The, I, they, they say they think they've now got something that's the equivalent of a four-year-old operating inside of Second Life. That's huh. pretty cool. <laughs> That's higher than the mentality of some of the people on Second Life. <laughs> yeah, so so really a mature player inside of Second Life. Uh, but it's an interesting idea that they got rid of all the problems of the user interface of a human, the, the, all of the communication problems and so forth, by using Second Life as that interface so they could focus on the, quote, intelligence part of the problem. Oh, that's fantastic. And have you heard of uh, ALICE? It's the uh, Artificial Intelligence Foundation. It's an open-source AI language. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, I've heard uh, ALICE Bot. Yeah, ALICE.org. Alice. They're also... Right. They're, uh, they're working with um, uh, the Second Life uh, LibSL project, too, and uh, doing some really interesting things you can download and try yourself. I don't know if you guys heard, but uh, they're doing a lot of uh, cancer research and stuff, uh, or looking at things in Second Life because they can model, uh, you know, chemical compositions in the 3D environment and getting a lot of value out of that. So it's all about this ability to visualize. So this seems like a long way away from riding a motorcycle around a fictional realm. Yeah, that's usually the first experience is the motorcycle thing, but then we get into something more substantive. Yeah, you know, I had um, in my past jobs some real success with um, taking data from machinery at a facility I worked at and dumping it into Excel 
and allowing engineers to uh, interact with different um, limit lines over our data results um, and try different things without even having to call our engineers. And I saved a lot of time and did a lot of uh, really neat stuff with that. And I always wished, uh, I also worked on their uh, trade show, and I always wished there was an environment where I could both train people and, and maybe show some data if it was secure enough and um, also use it as a conference and training thing because much of our parts were in 3D and uh, much of our challenge was showing how the parts interacted with each other internally. We would fly people in from around the world to do a PowerPoint show where I made a Bryce 3D model and that was the only thing that stuck in their mind. And I always thought, wow, you know, if we could get the money to license the Unreal Engine or something, we could really do a persistent trade show environment and as soon as I got into Second Life and saw the, what Microsoft had started, it, it was exactly what I was thinking. So I think that we can, you know, these are just, we have an interactive calendar that talks with an SQL database on our group site, and, you know, that's a neat trick. And I, I think we're laying the foundation to really start bringing business and real data in to uh, visualize in Second Life and get away from just the fun designer aspect of it. So far, and correct me if I'm wrong, largely all I've seen happening in Second Life is there just another way, another venue, essentially, to communicate a launch or some kind of PR-style event. But I, what I hear you saying is maybe we could bring, well, let's say, let's pick something like a jet engine. Funny I would pick that. So we pick a jet <laughs> engine, and now we can show how to disassemble it, reassemble it, what the parts look like, how they go together, how the pieces interact, being able to see the engine transparently and start it. Is that, I mean, is that even possible in Second Life, that kind of detail? Absolutely. In fact, if that's being done to a great extent now. Um, uh, the, really the thing that I'm trying to do is tap in some existing web resources to drive those kinds of things so that you're not always uh, recreating the wheel. But that kind of thing is being done right now, like the cancer research um, in Second Life all over the place. And with Havoc 4 that was just um, released, we have almost uh, in the neighborhood of Half-Life 2 type physics that we can start playing with. So things are really wow. interacting with uh, real physics now, and uh, what you just described is entirely possible and exactly what I'd like to see happen. Right. The, the Havoc engine is the Half-Life engine. Yes, and I think they're on a, a higher version for the latest version of Half-Life than Havoc 4, but nonetheless, if you go to YouTube and, and uh, send a search for uh, Second Life and Havoc 4, you'll see some very uh, compelling video about what can be done now. I, can I just tell you about my experience with uh, Second Life, which was last year when I got my new PC together and I got this killer video card and a big Dell 30-inch display and I really wanted to see what it was all about. And I, it, it seemed to me that things were rendering really slowly and I wondered, uh, it couldn't be the graphics card. It must just be the, the sort of the network that, that it's uh, being hosted on. Is that uh, is that an ongoing concern for the Second Life people, just con constantly keeping up that infrastructure? Very much so. We, we, the, obviously, there are, you're connecting to a virtual network using uh, a client that is relatively thin. Um, so when you log on, you're relying on as fat a pipe as you can possibly get to the Internet to download as much of the content as possible. And you're also relying on the server at the other end, having enough capacity to stream all those objects down to all the people requesting them. So 
uh, certain areas that you go to, you'll find that things just will not load in fast enough for you. And you'll have to stand around and wait for a bit and hope that things load in. Um, and there's, there's techniques you can use to try and reduce the lag um, in an area if you're building uh, a large building like an auditorium or something. Um, you can try and minimize lag for all the people who come to that auditorium by using various techniques. But um, no, it is very much it is an issue for anyone going on to Second Life is the lag. Well, I mean, is it an issue for them? Because it was clear. I mean, we have, you know, ridiculous bandwidth here. It was, you know, and I know that the, you have the the whole issue of the bandwidth between you and Second Life. But does does uh, Linden have this constant thing where they're constantly upgrading their bandwidth and infrastructure? Is that an issue for for everybody? Is it an issue for them? It's, I think it's an issue for everybody. Linden Labs do do a lot of work, I think, on updating their servers, but um, there are a lot of people complaining about the lag all the time. And this is not a bandwidth issue. This is a latency issue. This is not just the number yeah. of bytes. It's getting them there in time. As soon as you have a problem with multiple people in the same place, where the, the as more people gather, yeah. you have a bigger problem. That's a latency problem. Yeah, you know, another thing that, another thing to keep in mind is that the world is built by amateurs mostly right and uh, by people who are not considering that uh, they need to cut down on their png as small as possible I see. and uh, i've found myself guilty of this a few times already just like you do on any website where you get a little ajax happy or anything else so um that just happens and, and the other thing to think about with second life is that um, you have a broad color range and you have a, uh, a whole lot of things going on where avatars come in with very complex um, scripts running and animations running. So your, your server design has really got to be optimized to handle all of that stuff. And I think a lot of people are still learning how to uh, tweak that in. Is it possible to use a grid with, like, could I put a... A server on my network and plug into the grid, plug into the Second Life uh, world? No, it's not possible to do that um, unless uh, the Linden's open source the server, and then they would also have to allow people to connect to their grid. But with... um, Wouldn't that be cool? um, With OpenSim which is the uh, built on the LibSL um, project that we talked about before and is also open source, you can download right now um, uh, your own server that will, you can make your own grid or you can connect to some of the open source grids. And this is something that can be secured on a LAN, run on your local machine, and uh, you can let other people in. And it's, it's really all, almost all the tricks without the really cool physics and graphics of Second Life. So it's a, it's a really hot project if you're into .NET and C-sharp especially. I, w- I would think that would be a, a, a big deal for them to want to do because obviously they would license the server and the software, and uh, it'd be like creating a second visual internet that's truly an internet. Right? That's kind of complicated, though. I mean, we've we've actually had a lot of discussions around that, and and uh, particularly you know uh, around you know, what would it take. I think right now they, they're seeing it as a competitive advantage to stay a closed system. However, I think you're right. I think in the next few years, what we're going to see is the ability um, to have some type of metadata that represents your avatar, uh, so that you can take it to different virtual worlds. But there again, there's a whole lot of depth there. I mean, uh, if I have if I have a house and I have, you know, certain clothing in Second Life, 
how's that going to translate to right. another 3D virtual world? I mean, it really, I mean, I'm thinking architecturally here just off the top of my head that the, you know, the world can stay in, in Linden's world, but the definitions of the things that require rendering um, can be offloaded to, to your own server so that they're not doing all the work. Good point. The, the biggest challenge I think you're going to bang into that, and I think this is a huge topic all by itself, is hacking. I mean, we, we certainly saw in the news where certain politicians' zones in Second Life got hacked and, and messed up. I uh, think a giant poop was placed on John Edwards. But, you know, you have that on websites today. It's no different, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, slightly different. I was uh, doing a video recently, and it was quite a surprise to me to see uh, 1,500 uh, phalluses all over the island. So that was kind of interesting. <laughs> <I think. laughs> so a little, little, little different. Yeah. I guess it can be a, a lot more effective. <laughs> the hacking definitely got my attention yeah <laughs> well there's a certain visual component here that has potential <laughs> yeah say no more so the strength of life can also be its weakness well definitely we're getting into this idea that that if different if you're going to allow the population to contribute code to it then you have to deal with a poor quality code and B exploitation and i and i also think the the point you brought up about people not understanding you know, how to economize their uh, designs. It, you see that on the web, of course, when people uh, say, here, click on this little postage stamp to download the photo, and the postage stamp is the same photo, just with the width and height severely <laughs> limited. And you're wondering why it's drawing in this little space really slowly, you know. But I'm sure that, that right. comes into play in Second Life, too, where you're, you're mapping JPEGs to surfaces and those jpegs come out of digital cameras that are these huge files and and there you go now you've got a problem absolutely in fact uh, uh we recently had some some fun uh when we first started doing well, not recently but a little while back we had some fun when we first started doing this we were playing with different kinds of images we tried uh you know pngs and then ultimately found out those things just took what, what would you say Kyle, forever to load about what 30 seconds or more yeah, that's about right. Yeah, and then uh, well, we flipped over to JPEGs, and uh, you know it was, it was a heck of a lot better. Um, and so you know, obviously, there's a lot of experimentation that goes into it, and in, in, in testing your design. Interesting. So, what would you like to see in terms of, uh, let's say, that Mono does get adopted? What kinds of things would you guys be doing? And Second Life, would you be focusing on like the community aspect of it, like uh, .NET conferences and things like that, where you know you would actually have presenters giving talks, and instead of flying people all around the world, we could just do it in Second Life? Would you be concentrating on business applications, all of the above? What 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 would really get you going? Let's uh, let me ask. I, let me start with Chris. I I think that. Um, I mean, what, we, what we've started to do uh, pretty well already is host um, in-world presentations, and uh, certainly with the the constant stream of updates that we get to both the server and to the client code as supplied by Linden Labs, um, we get more and more features available to us all the time. And I think that the the idea of having a presentation in world with a presenter standing there on a podium talking about a topic without you having to get in a car, on a plane, in a hotel, whatever. You don't have to worry about travel costs or anything like that. If you just go to Second Life, you can come to a presentation from all around the world 
and you gain so much more. I mean, I think the, the sharing of knowledge is such a huge thing and it's accessible too. That's the other thing is that if you are, you know, if you're physically limited, if you can't actually leave the house, if you are financially limited, if you're a student, you get options, you get, or well, you get the, the option of meeting up with fellow-minded people, learning about things and uh, I, learning is power. That's, that's my philosophy in life. But Chris, just to dig into this a little further, what are we getting from Second Life in this scenario that we don't get from a webcast? <laughs> you are, you get a lot of interactivity. If you have a, even the simplest visual representation of yourself, it almost feels a little bit more personal than, you know, a phone call or something like that. You get to see someone in front of you. You can do little gestures, have a little bit more visual interactivity than, say, if you were, you know, on the end of a, I'd say, a live meeting session. You can ask questions of the presenter in live meeting, but you can't see the presenter and all right it's not actually the presenter it's an avatar but it's it's one step closer and the exploration of a 3d virtual world feels more realistic it's you know it's, it's not like playing half-life but you know it's it's nice i like it i feel like i'm more involved in something if i'm standing next to someone in a room even virtually um and i can ask some questions and it, it feels more personal i guess the other angle on this is that it's distraction too like, I'm just wondering, am I getting more out of the presentation or have I just got so much more to look at that I'm distracted from the presentation? You get that at a conference as well, right? I mean, it, yeah, it's a little more distracting, but you have the potential to do the networking and the things that you could not necessarily do with a with a closed... Well, and this is what I'm thinking is it's not so much being able to see the presenter as it is to be able to see the other attendees. Mm. Yes, yeah, and that's, and that's the piece that you want to hit on is that I think there's a misconception that uh, you, you have to understand when we do these things, we do it using something called voice. So we're actually speaking to them. And, you know, just like a webcast. You said VoIP, voice over IP? What's that? Yeah, it's actually a VoIP solution, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're, you know, we're projecting out there, and they're hearing us. Um, and this is, you know, this is uh, an awesome deal because it, it, it goes through their servers. And believe it or not, uh, a lot of stuff sometimes doesn't work so well, but to date, I haven't had any major problems uh, with their voice, uh, which is kind of interesting. It's just a very positive experience. Um, but the thing is, while we're doing a presentation, we, the speaker's doing voice, and then uh, typically what the uh, folks out there will do is ask their questions by typing them, so you don't get voice interruptions, and you can answer the questions effectively. Plus, there's just a billion side conversations going on in private chat that don't distract you from what's right. going on. And I guess that's the difference between a, a, we don't, what you described up until the side conversation sounded just like a webcast. That I, you can hear me, you can see what I'm showing on my screen, people are typing questions to me, I probably have a moderator pulling those questions up. The challenge is the side conversation. I mean, exactly. I know, and, and Carl knows this too, that when we're in meetings with uh, around Microsoft technologies where they're doing a webcast to us, all the folks, the other regional directors end up in a chat on the side talking about that as well and maybe spinning off other conversations. But you have to know everybody in advance that's going to be there to make that work. Right. The prospect of creating a new conversation with someone maybe you haven't talked to before, that's virtually impossible in a webcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's but, definitely not the case on the on Second Life. You've yeah. got conversations going left, right, and center on every topic, and it's great because you can just tune in, tune into that if you want to. You can tune out for that. You can listen intently to the speaker. It, it, it's almost easier to multitask in that kind of environment than it would be to sit in a conference and whisper to the person next to you and potentially distract everybody else around you. Yeah. Well, let me no ask. Potentially about it. Let me 
Let me ask you, Zane. Uh, video avatars. Uh-huh. Do you think that's possible? Desirable. The, the the are you talking about the avatar aspect of it? Yeah, I'm talking about vi- video representations of people rather than yeah, you know, animated. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, as a professional, you know, speaker, it's, you know, I do this, and 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 there's, I would say, it's a tiered approach. Nothing I think will ever replace the one-on-one personal experience of of seeing someone live. I just don't think that's possible. I think we can get darn close. And I truly believe that Second Life is that. Now, I'll give you an example why I believe that. Because I just realized this the other day, and I think uh, Kyle and Chris have heard this story. But I was um, I was getting ready to meet somebody in Second Life. And while I was waiting, and this is unbelievable, I didn't realize I was doing it, I was pacing. My avatar was pacing. My butt was in my chair, but my avatar was pacing. I mean, once you experience the visceral connection to this, to this new medium, it, it becomes an extension of you. So absolutely, I think it works. Nine out of ten psychologists would have a field day with this, huh? (laughs) (laughs) The other visualization piece that I find very... I'm all about... If I'm going to get past the whole presentation part of this, I want Airbus to put an A380 into this realm so we can all walk through it. Oh, you don't have to have an airplane. Everybody can fly. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about bringing real-world things in so that we can learn about them in advance. Oh, I see. And maybe have some impact on what they look like. Say, you know, this could be better. Why isn't this window larger? This space is going to be claustrophobic, that sort of thing. So so every company is really looking forward to getting a critique of a bunch of Second Life uh, nerds looking at their products (laughs) and telling them what's wrong with them. If it makes the product better, isn't it worth it? What, Kyle? I wanted to mention a uh, a uh, as as we call it a real life when we're in second life. You have your second life and your real life. But a uh, real life client that I got recently that um, was picked up um, initially because of what we're doing with Second Life. They're a a cabin um, log home builder, and um, it, it was very important to them. They had already hired a company previously to do 3D renderings. But um, the, so they had these, you know, JPEGs on their website of these uh, renderings. They almost looked like Second Life when I saw it. And uh, we came along. We said, "Well, we can also do we can we can do the same renderings, same quality. It's a little bit better actually in Second Life." And I think they were using Punch. Um, and um, we can um, also have an interactive option where the person could go right into the cabin and customize it with the, some of the techniques Chris talked about before by clicking here to, you know, add this type of cabinet or, or what as you tour through the house. And uh, when we got to talking with the client, they also said, well, look, we have a tough time translating the different subsections of our um, structures to the contractors. We'd like to be able to, uh, it's called resing in Second Life, is when you project out and build a, uh, a 3D object. And uh, they would like to show the different uh, subsections and how they're assembled um, to their contractors who are all over the world building these things. So uh, we, we got the contract, and we're actually replacing a PHP app for them that they're using in .NET. So wow. it's led, the little Second Life connection has led to uh, quite a bit for us. Wow. That's interesting. So there is a business uh, aspect to it as well. You've just got to really, you know, dig around and find clients that are using 
3D now. It's usually pseudo 3D. For our fuel tank monitors, the end result is a screen with fake 2D uh, fuel tanks that show the levels. So there's all around us is this pseudo 3D that we can start saying, hey, let's make this in real 3D and interactive, just like that jet idea. Well, it makes me wonder if this is our solution to virtual reality. You know, that that was really hot a few years ago, oh, this absolutely. idea that we would create these worlds to interact with our products. Now it sounds like we've got a world that we can bring our products to. I'm not so sure that Second Life is the end-all, be-all, though. I mean, until you have something that's open where people can just add on their piece of it, I don't really think it's... I agree. I mean, you're I basically relying on their network infrastructure to, to service everybody. It's don't one we network. Master that that ability to go across? I don't. I think you're right. We can't have a closed system if this is going to. No, be. but I do really think there's merit to the idea that I mean, obviously, if we're able to program our own avatars and create objects and so forth, sooner or later, if they don't open up this environment, somebody's going to make a third party solution, and that looks like it's already happening. Yeah, and the possibility that you would be able to tap into this very rich resource to create your own isolated world inside of your organization. Uh, has a lot of potential here. To heck with the consolidated world. Just like we have the internet, we also have the intranet. So why wouldn't we take advantage of that 3D representation for our own things and never bother putting it out on the, the Second Life world, put it in our own world? Welcome to Microsoft Avatar Server. Yeah, well, uh, it's funny <laughs> to bring that up. It, that's kind of already begun. Uh, there's uh, lots of uh, lots of stuff uh, happening even as we speak. Some of our competitors, I know, are have worked out uh, 3D uh, virtual spaces that you can use for business applications where you quite literally uh, walk down a virtual hall into a room and have a conference. And I know, uh, or I've heard rumblings that we might be looking at something similar. So uh, in the near future, I, you know, I, I predict that you're absolutely going to see that much like IMing was in the early days, Remember how it was disdained by business early on, but now it's kind of commonplace. Yes. I think you'll see the virtual world do the exact same thing. But I do, And I do like the idea that you would, I mean, even from a development point of view, to be able to run my own server to create items without having to be connected to Second Life. What's great about that is when you have your meeting, you're, uh, the people who are experiencing your objects in your environment are the only ones that are hitting your server. Right. So, I mean, it's going to render fast. You don't have the overhead of everyone else in the whole network to deal with. Yeah, plus you can get better performance metrics and stuff. As, right. as much as I love Second Life, they tend to be a little closed with some of the data. That just seems a natural extension to me. Well, and, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. And, and the plus being able to control uh, entrance. I mean, in theory, there are protections in Second Life, but there's no better protection than nobody else has access. Yeah, right. Well, you know, in my opinion, Second Life's a monopoly and a uh, a bit of a dictatorship in how it's run with the controlled economy and the rules. But um, I think that there'll be a place for them because uh, if, if Microsoft or anyone else really got into the same kind of uh, business eventually, there'd be things that they could not do that uh, Second Life being independent could do. But I really think that LibSL, 
which has already made been made into clients and servers that do what, what Second Life does and is more reliable than Second Life is the thing that um, .NET developers really got to think about. The more yeah. people we get with C-sharp skills on that project, the more um, it will catch up to Second Life and, if nothing else, force Second Life, the Linden Labs, to make some changes and possibly open source their server and allow us to do all these things. Our own version of the Magna Carta. Yeah, well, I mean, what is the downside of them open sourcing their server? Competition or hacking? Both. Yeah, I guess both are both, both are issues. But there is a real economy here. I mean, the Second Life has its own economy, much like eBay has its own economy. Hey, didn't right? we see on the news that there was some chunk of land that sold for a big pile of money? Yep. Yep. Real yep. money. Yeah, real money. Yeah. The. Uh, oh yeah. The exchange rate, what, uh, guys, help me out. I think the exchange rate tends to be $1 to every 230 linden, somewhere along in there. It, yeah, it's, it's almost almost $4 for 1,000 linden, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, so what yeah, does 1,000 lindens get me? Ooh, get you a, I don't know, a, a very, very small plot of land in a very insignificant place. But no, I think quite a few of us have had to invest a fair bit of money to get... A plot of land, uh, things for your avatar to make it look a little bit more human. Yeah, that's um, why it's a closed system. Or a system. bit more robotic, whichever, whichever way you want to go. Um, yeah, there, there is real money in, in Second Life. It's, it's scary how much I've spent on it already. I really wish I hadn't discovered it sometime, but there you go. <laughs> well, I mean, land is obviously one thing, but what else are you buying? Like, you talk about things for your avatar. What would you buy for your avatar? Well, there's there's loads of people who make um, clothing for avatars. Um, you get hairstyles for avatars. You get wings, tails, skin uh, tone. Oh, body, everything. Yes, yes, that too. There is obviously that aspect of Second Life. But, well, it's like the real world and the real web. Everywhere, everything is um, revolves around that particular aspect, doesn't it? But what are, wait, 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 what it, did I miss? What what are we talking about? <laughs> I'm sorry. This show just got a lot more <laughs> interesting. Second Life. <laughs> There we go. The rating yeah. just went up. <laughs> you got to stay care of that stuff. It's just oh unpleasant. But no, you you get there are some very talented artists using Second Life doing designs for all sorts of things, textures for objects, um, um, objects themselves. You can sculpt three um, D objects using you know three D packages. Um, there's there's huge potential for artistic creation and um yeah i have no problem spending money with people who spent their time building them because well and and so then there's an economy here where i have lindens i pay with lindens they can be cashed out for real money as well right yeah absolutely so well, there you go uh, there. somebody in theory working hard enough could make a living off of second life that's I'm not sure theory yeah you know reality uh there's there's folks yeah. who make their living off second life and the thing, the another thing that um, the Linden Labs have done, which is very uh, powerful as far as empowering people to do business, is to uh, put on on their terms of service that what you make, you have copyright to. You, right. you know, can protect that, and that's very unique to uh, any type of game that you've ever seen. You know, even the the mods that you can make don't give you any sort of rights to the actual game that's running. You know, from the, uh, main, the the creators, so that's a really unique thing, and really gets people excited and confident about I can set up a business in here. Here's an off the wall end of show question for the three of you: Is there any crime in Second Life? Is there such thing? <laughs> oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. In fact, I would argue, and you guys back me up on this, but 
probably the best crime perpetrated in Second Life is the con job, because it's way easier to do it in that format than it is in real life. What do you guys yeah. think? Scamming is the thing. So, in other words, I'll sell you a plot of land, give me all your lindens, and then it doesn't exist, or something? A on the uh, oceanfront property in Arizona thing, you bet. Golden Gate Bridge. There's also, there's also people who go around, for example, and they'll they'll uh, put horrible looking things next to your property. They'll buy a tiny spot for maybe five dollars. That's really impossible to build anything on. Five lindens, and uh, then they'll put this big horrible looking arrow rotating thing right next to your beautiful land that you laid out and you bring your clients to and do all this. And uh, the actual worth of your land goes down should you want to sell it. And uh, they just uh, they wait people out and steal up land cheap that way. So there's some really sneaky, uh, you know. And I also find it funny, you know, uh, when you're flying around, I was looking for land for myself. And uh, it's just like uh, real life in there. That's what makes uh, Second Life really unique is that there's the good areas of town and the bad areas of town. You know that the, right next to the conference center in real life, there's a few sketchy little areas of town right there. And that's how I explain to clients, you know, stick to the to the good path in Second Life and uh, you'll be okay. But if you go, you know, looking around, you'll find just about anything in there that you would in real life, too. I dropped in on the Reuters Second Life site, and they're showing uh, past 24 hours, 1.4 million U.S. dollars exchanged. Wow, that's uh, yeah. that's cash flow. That's uh, that economy. Yep. That's, uh, in fact, yep. I believe that's a major part. You know, the Lindens uh, themselves, I don't think, make as much money off of the the subscriptions because you do pay a, a membership fee as they do off the exchange rate. There's, right. there's real money being made there, so. Absolutely. That's very important to everybody across the board. When does the uh, government step in and say, this is a country? Well, that hasn't happened yet, thank goodness. But uh, it uh, it certainly, uh, I'm waiting for the government to regulate it. But there again, it's the Internet, right? So remember with online gambling where they said, well, you can't gamble, you know, in the States. They said, okay, we'll just move over here. And then, you know, so, I mean, you can't, thank goodness, something like this, you can't stop it, all you can do is postpone it until they move somewhere else. Yeah, there's a there's a big issue, actually, with the European market at the moment. Um, within the last six months, Linden Labs suddenly discovered that they really should have been paying VAT. Um, Ouch. <laughs> and, yeah, the VAT people weren't very happy about that, and neither are we, because what they did was um, basically say, oh, okay, anyone in Europe, you have to now pay VAT at the rate that your country has of the VAT, which in the United Kingdom is 17.5% which means now that it's going to cost everybody in Europe, depending on their rate of VAT, a, a, a quite a big proportion more to do anything in second life. So if you buy land, that's a transaction that, you know, it could well be subject to VAT. And if you're the sort of person who would like to make money out of Linden Lab, uh, well, out of second life, it's actually a bit more difficult now because Americans will be quite happily paying, you know, their amount without any extra tax on top and, uh, yeah, it's less expensive for them than it is for us. But Ameri- there you go. Americans don't even know what VAT stands for, actually. Value added tax. Yeah, it's like you. sales tax, except it's countrywide. Right. 
Well, and it, and it's interesting that they just gave in like that too, because it's it's an interesting taxing problem. Like that's once you start taxing pieces of the internet, you really get into trouble, especially when you're not delivering a product. I mean, it's one thing to be taxed by uh, you making a transaction with an Amazon.com and receiving a book. It's another thing when you're playing. Uh, or, you know, hanging out in this realm. Sure, you're in the UK, but the servers aren't. Where did the money actually take place? Where did the transaction occur? Where did the event occur, think, you know? Yeah. I think, exactly. I think, yeah, it, it depends where your offices are based, doesn't it? But, oh, it's it's a nasty, complicated, lawyer-filled world that well, I don't Well, absolutely, and, and precedent is what counts. The fact that the Lindens are paying that tax is the best proof that they should. Well, I want to thank you guys for being on Philosophy Rocks today (laughs) (laughs) virtual philosophy no seriously that's so there's a lot to think about here and uh it certainly is going to get interesting when dotnet developers can get in there with uh, the some of the tools that are coming out and especially if they uh especially if they open it up and but even if you know they just give us a mono interface very exciting thank you guys thank you very much for having us on my pleasure you bet And uh, we will see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.